Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Well, thank you to our worship team. Hey, if you take your Bibles, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter number 7. Same place we were in uh, last week, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. That's the Old Testament. You may just have to look in the front of your Bible to find that one, but chapter number 7. We started the, the sermon series on revival. That's our theme for our 21 days of prayer, and here's where we are. I think I told you last week that I feel like me and a whiteboard can solve most of the world's problems, but I mean, we, we've got things going on now, we always do, that are beyond us, that we literally need a move of God, national, world, church, personal. We need a word of God, a move of God in our lives, and we call that revival. And so started it last week, but want to preach on this again today, this same passage, but this week I titled it, Don't Waste Your Life, and I'll, I'll get there in, in a moment. See, there are times in our lives, right? When we insist on going our own direction, even when we're, it's fairly clear that it's the wrong direction. So let's just, can we have a bout of honesty for a moment? How many of you have done something where everything in you told you not to do it and everybody around you told you not to do it, but you did anyway? You ever, you ever done that? Like, that's right. Like, that's just how we are sometimes. Like, sometimes it's like stupid takes over, right? And we can't stop ourselves from doing stupid, and you're not as bad as this guy probably, at least in some ways. This guy's name is Franz Rochelt. Franz Rochelt was an Australian-born, uh, uh, basically French tailor who lived in Paris. And he opened a dressmaking business in Paris uh, some a little over 100 years ago, and after he did, Franz became obsessed with developing a wearable parachute. Uh, flight had just gotten started, and he was obsessed with developing a wearable parachute that would aviators could use when they jumped out of planes, even in emergency scenes or jump out on purpose. Now, you go back to the early 1900s, uh, a, a parachute wasn't a new idea. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, we can look back in Leonardo da Vinci's journal and long before this, Le- Leonardo da Vinci wrote this. I- I've got it written down. He said, if a man have a tent of made of linen, of which the openings have all been stopped up, and it be 12, 23 feet across and 12 in depth, he'll be able to throw himself down from any great height without suffering any injury. So da Vinci had already developed the basic apparatus of a parachute, and it came along just a few years before Franz, a guy named Charles Broadway, had developed the first foldable parachute that could be worn on the back, and it was released when you jumped and a line was attached to it, and it would jerk the parachute out of the back. So in 1911, Broadwick had thrown a dummy off the top of the Eiffel Tower, and the dummy was able to float to the ground. But Franz became obsessed with working on a wearable parachute. His first design was 65 square feet and weighed 150 pounds, which is too heavy. Now listen to this next statement. It's the most important statement I'll make in this story. Every experiment Franz conducted with dummies failed. Every experiment. How many succeeded? None. But he wouldn't give up. So he reduced the weight of the parachute to 55 pounds, doubled the amount of material used, and when he tested it again, every 
test was unsuccessful. And the dummies would just plummet to earth and explode. He, he himself broke his leg trying to test it out himself. But here's the thing about Franz that reminds him a lot about us. Despite his repeated failures, he refused to see any flaws in his design. Right? Now, that's a lot like us, right? But despite making a mess of our lives, we refuse to see any flaws in the design of our life that we put together. So he kept saying, well, I'm throwing the dummies off. Maybe if I just go higher, it'll work. And so he began petitioning the authorities in Paris if he could jump off uh, uh, the top of the Eiffel Tower. And they kept saying, no, you cannot jump off the Eiffel Tower. And so he kept on and kept on over a long process of time. They finally approved it. And here's what they said. You can jump off if you throw a dummy off first and it floats to the ground because that's never happened before. Probably wasn't going to happen again. And then on February 4th, 1912, Franz showed up to the Eiffel Tower dressed like this. As a matter of fact, onlookers said you could barely tell he had anything under his clothing. It was, it was so compacted in there that uh, it looked like normal clothes almost. But a huge crowd knew what was happening. They all gathered around the Eiffel Tower. And uh, uh, they assumed that he was going to uh, throw the dummy off. But it took just a little while to realize there was no dummy. And his friends started saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Franz, what are you about to do? And he said, and I quote, I want to try the experiment myself and without trickery as I tend to prove to you the worth of my invention. I just want to parenthetically say, a wooden dummy would work fine to show you the uh, worth of my invention. But he wouldn't listen. And he started up with people begging him not to do it, friends begging him not to do it, people pleading, the authorities pleading with him not to do it. Franz, don't throw yourself off, but he, he walked up the stairs slowly until he got to the first deck on the tower that was 187 feet high. So at the height of 187 feet, and this is the actual video of it happening, he, he got on top of the ledge and he stood there for a full 40 seconds, begging, uh, people begging him, don't do it. People saying this is the worst decision you could ever make. Uh, authorities trying to get him to get down. But Franz stood there and absolutely refused to come, but he hesitated for 40 seconds. Now, for the sake of the kids, I cut it off. In case you're wondering, it has not deployed. He dropped like a brick into his own tangle suit, 187 feet, and was dead by the time his friends could get to him. Now, I know, I know you're thinking, a little morbid for Sunday morning preacher, right? But I, I'm trying to get the point across here, right? I'm trying to get a point across. That before we throw a little shade at Franz here in Paris in 1912 or whenever it was, can I tell you, we're not much different than that a lot of times. 
Because how many times in our lives have we been about to make a decision, have been about to do something, have been about to go somewhere, have been about to make a major life change, and all the while we've got friends around us telling us it's not a good idea. All the while we've got family around us telling us it's not a good idea. All the while we've got spiritual mentors and pastors and other people in our life telling us, hey, this is not a good idea. And if you are a child of God, not only do we have that, we have the Spirit of God who resides within our heart and the Spirit Spirit of God is whispering to us. The voice of God is warning us. The voice of God is pleading with us. The voice of God is advising us. And all the while, you know what we do? We climb up on the ledge and jump. And can I tell you how I want to define revival today? Revival is listening to that voice of God. You know what the opposite of revival is? Revival is shutting out those people around us. Revival is shutting out the voice of God. But revival is shutting out the warnings and admonition of God. What revival is, is when God is speaking to our hearts, when God is speaking into our lives, when God is pouring into us through his word, through a sermon, through his spirit. Revival is when we listen to the voice of God. And that's where revival starts. So I want us to look at it today. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? Second Chronicles chapter 7. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Same passage as last week, but it's so such an important passage. Verse number 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I shut the sky so there's no rain... Or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, or if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. Thank you. You may be seated. So we've already dipped our toes in the waters of this passage, right? Like last week we learned that, that yesterday's fire may not burn today. Like there, there, there's a probably chances are when we get revival in our lives, oftentimes when we first get saved that, that revival has a way of, of dissipating over time. And then when it does and the presence of God is gone, we learn that, look, here, I mean, it's just the truth. It's such a great principle to learn that when we look out at America and we say America needs revival, man, don't point your fingers out there. Point your fingers in here. Right? It's not them God ever talks. He never addresses the world's sinfulness. He always addresses his people. It's those of us in this room that need revival. And so we learned all that last week. And now God, having laid that foundation, he kind of gives what I'll call the prescription for revival. So here they are, four things I want to say today. Number one, if you want to have revival, you have to admit defeat. Now, here's the thing about this. It says, humble yourselves, right? Now, that is a, you, you've got to be careful there in the Hebrew because that is not a noun or an adjective. Humble is a verb. It is an action that you have to take. It meant to subdue yourself or lower yourself or take the pride out of your heart. It literally meant to defeat the enemy. It was often used in that, in that context of defeating an enemy, which is really where I want to go today. It is a humbling of oneself, especially before the Lord. It means to subdue your pride, get rid of your pride, and declare loyalty to God and his will. That is humble yourselves. 
That if we want revival, if you want revival, revival, listen to this, never comes to a proud heart. Humbleness is the only way for the child of God to have revival, and that comes when we admit defeat. What what do you mean by admit defeat, preacher? That is when you admit your way is not the best way. When you admit that God's way is the way of blessing. When you admit that your knowledge is lacking and your insight is narrow. When you admit that without the Lord you have no victory. When you admit that in the battle for your heart and your mind and your will and your way that you have got to raise the white flag of surrender and you say, Lord, I admit defeat. Revival does not come to the proud. Revival only comes to the humble. And can I tell you, God doesn't bless the proud. God doesn't lift up the proud. God doesn't give to the proud. God doesn't forgive the proud. God doesn't bless the proud. God only blesses those who admit defeat and come humbly before God and raise the white flag of surrender and say, Lord, I give in. My way is not your way. Can we just say the reason so many Christians do not have the blessings of God in their life is revival in their spiritual life is that you just refuse to admit defeat. And we keep fighting the same battles over and over again. And we keep trying to convince ourselves that our way is better than God's way, that our choices are better than what God would choose, that, that the decisions we make, making them in our flesh is better than what the Spirit of God would choose for our life. And we just fight that battle and over and over. But listen, Jesus has already won the battle on the cross for you and me. Our job's not to keep fighting that battle because when we do, we make a mess of our lives. Our job is just to run up the white flag of surrender and say, Lord, I give up. I've tried to do this myself and made a mess of it. A lot of us are like this guy, and and I won't say his name right. He's Japanese, but he's Lieutenant Hiro Inoda. Hiro Inoda. He fought for Japan in World War II, and in 1944, his his uh, platoon was dropped off on an island in the Philippines, and the last thing his commanding soldier, uh, officer said to him was never, ever surrender. In 1945, the Allied forces captured the island that he was on, and he and three soldiers snuck away into the jungles of the Philippine Islands, and they got lost in the jungles. In 1950, uh, one of the men surrendered to the Allied forces. And you're right, 1950 was five years after the war was over. The police killed two other members while they were raiding, and they were dangerous. They had killed over 30 Filipinos in raids and shootouts, believing the war was still going on. The Japanese government tried to track him down with search parties, even dropped leaflets over the jungle telling him the war was over. But He believed it was all propaganda from the United States and trickery, and he wouldn't surrender. He would not surrender until March 1974. Do you know how they got him to surrender? They had to go back and find his old commanding officer, fly him to the Philippines, send him loose in the jungle, have him find him and say, hey, dude, the war's been over for 30 years. 30 years after the war was over, before he surrendered. That's the average Christian. That is the absolute average Christian. Jesus won the war on the cross of Calvary and explained to us that his way is still the best way. His word is the way to go. His will is the best thing for our lives. And in our pride, we refuse to surrender. 
We're almost like this. God, I, you, you take care of eternity, God. I got this down here. Let me tell you what God says about the proud. James 4, 6, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God, resist the proud. Gives grace to the humble. Proverbs tells us this, 16, 5. Everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Detestable. He will not go unpunished, detestable. Can I tell you, if you want revival in your life, if I want revival in our lives, it'll be if we want to rekindle the flame of Jesus in our lives, it comes as we finally admit defeat, that we admit our way is not the best way, that we humble ourselves to the will of God, that we humble ourselves to the word of God. We humble ourselves to what God would speak in a, in a, into our lives. You'll never have revival. You'll never have revival. We'll never have revival as long as we walk around with pride. Second thing he tells us is this, though. You want to have revival? You have to go looking for what you lost. He says, pray and seek my face. Now, both are prescriptions for revival, right? Let me define those two things. Prayer is seeking the provision of God. Seeking his face is seeking the presence of God. Prayer seeking the provision Seeking his face is seeking the presence of God. Those are two different things. Now, we're very familiar with prayer, right? We pray for God's provision all the time. So, God, we need you to bless our finances. That's praying for the provision of God. God, we need you to do something about my health. That's the provision of God. We're in distress. We need the provision of God. Daily needs, we need the provision of God. Uh, children, uh, help me with these kids, God. Uh, provision of God. Pass a test tomorrow at school. That's provision of God. Marriage and family, that is the provision of God. I don't have to train you or teach you how to pray for that you have a natural instinct as a child of God that if your life is in distress you know to go ask God to relieve the distress of your life God I need your provision we're actually good at it but what we're not good at is the second phrase seek my face that's a longing for the presence of God it's a longing for the fellowship of God, the friendships of God, friendship of God, the power of God, the closeness of God in our lives. See, the winds of a revival, they go from praying for the provision of God to being more concerned with searching for the presence of God. That prayer becomes earnestly seeking and searching for the presence of God because the implication in the passage we read, we know it is, the presence of God has departed. That's why God's giving out this verse to Solomon that, that uh, Solomon, there's going to come a time in your life when you have, when you have, I've removed my presence. You don't feel me anymore. I'm not moving in the midst of the children of Israel. And when that happens, you're going to miss the presence of God. So Lord, uh, Solomon, here's what I want you to do. When the presence is gone, I want you to search for my presence like you you would a great treasure. Seek what you've lost. And the presence of God should be so valuable a treasure in your life that you can't survive a minute without it, that when it's gone, you have to go find it. How far do we take that? Well, if we want to use a human example, I'll give you a guy named Mel Fisher. Mel Fisher was a chicken farmer by trade, born in 1922 in Hobart, Indiana, and 
When he was a little boy, he had read the books of Robert Louis Stevenson, specifically Treasure Island, and he determined as a little boy that he was going to grow up and be a treasure seeker when he grew up. And so he took his whole family at one point and moved to California, opened the first um, a surf shop in California's history. And after a while, he wanted to go search for treasure, and he moved his entire family to the East Coast of Florida. And that was he, his wife, four boys, and a daughter, packed up and moved to uh, Florida. And he began to search for a 1715 Spanish fleet that had gone under in a storm as it was transporting uh, valuables from South America back to Europe. He spent 16 years of his life, 16 years. By the way, the, the British law at the time was basically finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If you found it, it was yours. They've changed the law since then, mainly because of mail. And Florida actually tried to sue mail and lost. Florida wanted to get some of the money that he found because 16 years after he'd done it, and by the way, he had lost his oldest son who had drowned, who was an adult, but drowned when a ship, they were on capsized. 16 years, 16 years in 1980, they discovered the wreck of the Santa Margarita and they pulled up eventually what was $20 million worth of gold and other treasures. It was five years later, still searching for the main cargo carrier of the fleet. That his oldest son, Cain, radioed his father who was on another boat and he said, put away the charts, we just found the main pile and they had found the main boat in the fleet and they wound up pulling up 40 tons of gold, 114,000 pieces of gold, 71 pounds of rare Colombian emeralds. The list goes on and on and on. It eventually tallied to $450 million worth of treasure that he spent his entire life looking for, even cost him the life of his son. And I only tell you that because that's exactly what God has in mind with Solomon when he says, seek my face. When the presence of God is gone, we're not talking about the provision of God. We're talking about the presence of God is gone. You search for me the way Mel Fisher searched for a treasure. That is what brings revival. Revival is us going all in on the presence of God. And his presence ought to be more valuable to our lives than gold and silver and emeralds. Because if you want revival, it's not just about praying. That's great. You should pray. We'll do it in a moment. But it's about seeking the presence of God. When's the last time you felt God speak to your heart? When's the last time you felt Moved by God? When's the last time you were so filled with the presence of God you couldn't help but raise your hands in worship? You couldn't help but shed a tear in worship? You couldn't help but shout hallelujah in worship? That is the presence of God. Third thing he says we have to do is not only go looking for what was lost, but number three, if it's wrong, it's, it has to be gone. Here's what he said, turn from their evil ways. Do you know what happens? I think these things are almost sequential because you know what happens when the presence of God comes in our life? This is always true. When the presence of God is in our life, we start noticing what doesn't belong in our lives. 
God has a way of doing that, right, with his holiness. We'll look at that in another sermon coming up. When, when the presence of God, his holiness comes into our life, we immediately start noticing what doesn't belong in our lives, the sin that should not be here. Revival, he's trying to tell Solomon, does not come in the presence of sin. Here's the deal. You can either have the presence of God in your life or the presence of unforgiven sin in your life. You can't have both. You can have God or you can have unforgiven sin. You can't have both. Now, we're not talking about perfection here, but when you choose a sin over the presence of God, the presence of God will depart. You say, well, how how do I know what sin that is? He'll tell you. You start seeking his face. He will always let you know what is keeping his presence away. And I just want to tell you, and I'm going to hit it move on, that that, that repentance is not an option when it comes to revival. That repentance is mandatory when it comes to revival. That is, God begins to show me through his presence in my life. God doesn't expect perfection, hey, but he expects obedience. And when God's presence begins to show me what is in my life that doesn't line up with his will, that doesn't line up with his word, that is outright rebellion and sin, here's all he expects you to do. Is if it's wrong, it's gone. And then number four, and I'm finished. He sums it all up by saying this. You don't get this without that. Here's what I mean. Here's three things he said you were going to get. That he'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins, heal their land. That's attention. Do you want the attention of God? Hear from heaven. You want the remission of God? Forgive their sin. You want the restoration of God? Heal their land. We need all those things, right? We want, we want God's attention in our lives. So when we pray, we know he hears our prayers. We want the forgiveness of God in our lives. So when we sin, we know he'll forgive us of our sin. But really what we've been talking about with revival was the restoration of God. Right? We need God to heal some things, don't we? Can I get an amen if I say we need God to heal our nation? Can you say amen to that? But, but I don't get this without the other. We need God to heal our families. We need God sometimes to heal our health, to heal our relationships, to heal our emotions, to heal our hearts, to heal our church, to heal us. Like we need God to heal so many things, to restore so many things. And we want all of that. And we say amen to all of that. But just one problem, we really want this without that. We want this attention and we want this remission and we want this restoration. But we're not really big on the humbleness and prayer and seeking God and turning from our evil ways. And this is the promise that only comes with the prescription. Close your Bibles and I'm finished. Do we want this? With all of our hearts, we want this. Hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. And I don't preach these sermons these two weeks, and it sounds like a lot, right? It sounds like, well, preacher, you're talking about revival, and you're talking about all kinds of things that have to go on. Like, you, how much of my time do you want? I mean, literally, you almost ask yourself, do I have time for revival? Which is a crazy even thing to suggest. But I want to submit to you this morning that you really do have time for revival because... They just did a survey, brand new survey, of Gen Xers, baby boomers, and millennials. 
And here's what they found. That, of course, millennials spent the most time on their phone out of that group is over four hours a day. But before you non-millennials look down on us millennials, uh, there are <laughs> Gen Xers spend three hours a day. Boomers spend two and a half hours a day. On average, we spend 3.7 hours a day on our phone. Can I put that in perspective for millennials? That turned out to be 56 days a year. For boomers, that turned out to be 39 days a year. And here's what the research said. That over the course of your lifetime, the average American will spend 76,500 hours on your phone. 76,500 hours on this thing. 76,500 hours. You know what that equates to? 8.74 years of your life. We got time for revival. You say, Richard, you tell me to get rid of my phone? I'm, I'm definitely not. It, for most of us, it's a necessity of work and life, right? I'm not telling anybody to get rid of their phone. What, what if we just cut that time in half? What if we just took the nine years we're spending on the phone and we cut it down to four and a half years? And here's what we said. I'm going to spend that time praying for revival. I'm going to spend that time seeking the face of God. I'm going to spend that time knowing yesterday's fire is not burning today. Knowing that God's talking to me, not, not them. Humbling myself. You get the picture. We've got the time. The question is, do we really want to have revival? Would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We did it last week, we're going to do it again this week, that our staff is up front, and if you want to join our church, if you want to move your membership here, if you want to be baptized, then our staff is here, and they'll uh, answer any questions. We're at this next step station on the left and on the right. And they'll answer any questions you may have. So in just a moment, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you want to join our church, become a Christian, or be baptized, they'll be right here for you, and they'll, uh, they'll answer any questions you may have. Like, they'll, they'll come deal with you. And then some of you here today that you're not a Christian, and look, look this, this, this sermon's not for you, but know this, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most important decision you'll make in your life because good people don't go to heaven and bad people don't go to hell. People who've trusted Jesus as their savior go to heaven and people who haven't die and go to hell. And so our staff is here. They'll walk you through that whole process. Just walk right up here to these stations on my right and left that say next step and they'll be glad to answer those questions for you. But, 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 maybe you want to join our church. Maybe you need to be baptized. Go tell them that. They'll walk you through the process. If you just have questions. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call us as Christians forward to, again to pray. We did it last week. I know some of you might be thinking, well, preacher, we walked down the altar to pray for revival last week. Yeah, and listen, if you're going to have revival in our church in your life, you better get used to walking down to the altar and kneeling and praying to God. That's a common, that's a common indication of revival. 
And if for a moment you thought one prayer would bring revival, can I tell you, you were sadly mistaken. And would you bow and let's pray those prayers? God, I don't want to live off yesterday's fire. God, I want to humble my heart and surrender to your will. God, I want to passionately seek your face. I want to get rid of the sin in my life. Lord, we need healing in our land and our nation in my own heart and life. God, send revival. Send revival. That's our prayer. Lord, send revival. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.